used to think this was the beginning of your story. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time, by its order. here town. These are my tickle guns and I'm gonna get you. You want me to chase you? You better run. that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 321, Arrival. And this is listener request number 42, courtesy of Johnny. We're excited. Yes. This is a big episode. A movie that took the world by storm in 2016, was one of the best movies of the decade. Everyone loved it, and... Not to reveal everything right now, but there is another listener request oh. coming in the near future. 
That also is from the work of director Denis Villeneuve. This one, one of our known obsessions, time, heavily (laughs) factored in. Time, language, things that we both struggle with. (laughs) I struggle with time, Matt struggles with language. Absolutely. If I all of a sudden had this ability, I don't know, I don't think I could cope with it. You can't even start a sentence from one side, let alone both sides at the same time. (laughs) It does kind (laughs) of seem like this is how my brain is always working, though. When I'm trying to complete a thought... I, I definitely can't get to the end of it. You can't land the plane. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> There's just fragments from both sides. <laughs> when they're talking about do it forward and then do it backward, it's like, I, well, I never even get to the middle. <laughs> anyway, thank you to Johnny for the listener request. Rolling right along. Big week. Just days ago, we released another one, I believe, unless we didn't. And then I will probably cut this out. Hmm. Otherwise, huge week headed into one trashy summer for June. If you have a listener request, you will be waiting until the end of the year, but you can purchase one. $50 for a movie up to two hours and ten minutes. $75 for a movie up to three hours. You can reach us on Twitter at GreatestPod, and you can email us, greatestpod at gmail.com. We have a pen. Shelly, Brian, and Kevin coming up in July. Luke and Carla in August. Thomas and Keith in September. That is the way it's shaken out right now. Well, stay tuned then. So if you're not on that list and you gave me a listener request, oh boy. please reach out. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that's everybody that we have left to get to right now. Anyway, follow us on Twitter. Send us an email. We'll read another one today at the end of the episode. We'd love to continue doing that. So email us, greatestpod at gmail.com. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed to it. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. Let's get into it. There's a lot to say about Arrival, so no reason to waste any time. Arrival was released in 2016. It was directed by Denis Villeneuve, screenplay by... Eric Heisserer, I believe is how you say it. I'm not really sure. Based on the 1998 novella Story of Your Life by Ted Chang. Budget $47 million. Box office $203.4 million, making it a big hit commercially and critically. Was one of the defining movies of the year for sure. Definitely. I distinctly remember you explaining your in-theater reaction to something that happens in the movie. And then I definitely went to see it in the theater, but I'm not sure if it was with you or maybe by myself about that. Oh, God. I don't know if you went to see it a second time. I don't know. I can't really remember who I saw it with, but I do remember the experience. I know I didn't see it with you the first time because you were telling me about it, but I did go see it in the theater. It may have been by myself. For those of you who have not yet seen Arrival or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast... I believe it's streaming free on something called Pluto TV, which is one of those free apps. Oh, I rented it off Prime, and it was like one of those things that's like a kick in the nuts because it will be available on Prime in 11 days. Oh. (laughs) But it's okay. All right, well, that's good that you have that information for people because by the time we post this, that'll probably be about half of those days. yes. So, yes, coming to Amazon Prime shortly. It did blow my mind a little bit to watch the Blu-ray and have it open with the Paramount logo. I know. Well, then I, I checked Paramount Plus when I was seeing that it was a Paramount movie, but 
No dice. Yeah, I don't understand why they don't treat their catalog like Disney or something. And if it's a Paramount movie, it's just going to be on Paramount+. Plus. I get that maybe there's different costs involved, but there should be at least a stable of standard Paramount movies that are always on there. Right. And I would feel like this should be one of them, but I don't know how that works. Whatever. It's fine. Arrival was nominated for eight Academy Awards, winning just one in the category of Best Achievement in Sound Editing. It was also nominated for Best Picture, which Moonlight won. Oh, yes. Best Director. Infamously. Which Damien Chazelle won for La La Land. Best Adapted Screenplay, which Moonlight won. Best Cinematography, which La La Land won. Best Film Editing, which Hacksaw Ridge won, proving that oh, wow. there were other films up that year. Yeah, Definitely was the Moonlight La La Land year, even before the incident at the Oscars. Best Sound Mixing, which Hacksaw Ridge won, and Best Production Design, which La La Land won. In addition to Arrival, La La Land, Moonlight, and Hacksaw Ridge, it was also the year of Manchester by the Sea, Ah, yeah, Fences, Hell or High Water, Nocturnal Animals, Hidden Figures, Silence, and Lion. There's always that one that feels like it comes away with two or three wins that never gets talked about again. I feel like Hacksaw Ridge was it that year. You like you mentioning it now. I'm like, oh yeah, that was a movie. Well, part of the problem was it was directed by Hollywood sweetheart Mel Gibson. Oh, yeah. So that right. factors into people not being super sure. into it. Yeah. Arrival is based on the Nebula-winning science fiction novella Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang, written in 1998. The novella involves Earth's first communication with heptapods who speak in a cryptic language. Screenwriter Eric Hesserer, or Heiserer, had been introduced to the story through another of Chiang's stories, Understand, and had begun reading through Chiang's collected works when Story of Your Life had a profound emotional effect on him. As a result, he decided to try to adapt the story into a film script as he wanted to share it with a wider audience. After writing an initial spec script, Heisterer pitched it to production companies for several years without receiving any interest and nearly gave up on the project. Heisterer believes it was not until he had successfully completed and produced 2013's Hours that others took interest in his work, his having proved himself capable. Eventually, Dan Levine and Dan Cohen of 21 Laps Entertainment expressed interest in his script, Sean Levy of 21 Laps said they had become aware of Story of Your Life around 2011 and considered it a powerful work. When they learned of Heisser's script adaptation, they started working closely with him, helping him refine the script before they began seeking a director in a distribution studio. I did think it was funny that <laughs> he cites this movie Hours, and so I click on it thinking... The hours. Yeah, that was yeah. my initial thought, even though timeline right. was, it doesn't make any sense. And it was some Paul Walker movie that came out a month after he died. Oh, wow. That got bad reviews and was not a hit. So I was thinking, really? That's why you got this greenlit? <laughs> and it goes to show you sometimes how weird Hollywood is. They're just like, well, he proved he could make a movie. Didn't say it was great, but he did make one. So maybe we'll let him write this script. Yeah. These guys proved that they could do a podcast. <laughs> Nobody ever said it was great. Where's that heading? As you mentioned, I remember seeing this movie in the theater and being pretty blown away by it in a way that I don't want to spoil that 
conversation right now, even mm-hmm. though we're going to be spoiling everything almost immediately with the movie itself. But we'll get to that moment later. But yeah, I think I had a pretty big reaction to it every now and then, seemingly more so in the past than now. But there would be these heavy kind of adult movies that oh, would yeah. come out and they would be powerful and incredible and you would love them and mm-hmm. watch them but you wouldn't necessarily feel the need to rewatch it a bunch of times i'm thinking of yeah. films I, like mystic river or whatever i've never rewatched manchester by the sea even though i thought it was good yeah manchester by the sea from that same year is another example yeah. arrival is kind of like that even though you wouldn't expect it because it's science fiction and mm-hmm. Science fiction and genre movies tend to have a little bit more rewatchability, but it is very heavy. It is emotionally draining. Moving. I will say that <laughs> watching it in preparation for the podcast, I was emotionally devastated once again, <laughs> and maybe yeah. even more so this time because I wasn't caught off guard by what happens in the movie, so I was able to process the ending more. Well, just that piece of music even, which has been used in other stuff. I think it's in one of the trip movies, maybe the trip to Greece. Yeah, we'll I, talk about that piece of music because it kind of yeah. fucked over the the composer for the movie. Oh, really? He was, well, he wasn't eligible for an Oscar. Oh, yeah. Because they it, well, that piece that they used at the beginning and the end is not original. Right. But it is a moving piece of music. It is, but his score is really good, too, and he got right. nominated at everything else. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of what happened with Amy Adams, too, which mm-hmm. she didn't get nominated either. I don't know. This movie, I know it was a big year as far as those things we listed, because e- even beyond oh, La yeah. La Land and Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea was also heavily in the mix. So it was a big year. I know that every time things get snubbed or passed over, and it, it's not always anything other than just, well, there wasn't enough slots. Uh-huh. But I did find some of the lack of appreciation for Arrival to be kind of confusing to me. Not that it needed to sweep all of the awards, and I know that a science fiction movie's probably not going to win Best Picture, but I don't know. To win one out of eight and it be, no offense to the sound people, a little bit more of a minor yeah, technical type award rather than one of the biggies, I don't know. It seems like Arrival should have done a little bit better. One of the directors that 21 Laps approached was Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve had wanted to make a science fiction film for some time, although he never found the right thing. They introduced him to the novella, which he took to immediately, although his work on Prisoners meant that he did not have time to properly adapt it into a screenplay with Hesserer, or Heisserer. I'm going to go with Heisserer. Heisserer completed a first draft, which Villeneuve and him reworked into the final script. Villeneuve changed the title as he felt the original sounded like a romantic comedy and that the script had become very different from the short story. While Villeneuve went through hundreds of possible titles, Arrival was the first one his team of producers and writers had suggested. Before we get into Villeneuve's abbreviated filmography, I will say this about the title. It hits different (laughs) when you're able to fully process the ending which i was not able to do in the theater because i was so taken aback by the big reveal but once you fully wrap your mind around it and you apply the title more Mm -hmm. to louise's daughter hannah and think about it in that context yeah yeah and her arrival meaning more than her departure which i know sounds silly it's like a silly joke Uh but take out the words arrival and departure and think of birth and death 
instead. And how this film is really making a, a conscious choice to say that the juice is worth the squeeze when it comes to living life, even an abbreviated one. At least that's the thought process of the lead character, ultimately, uh-huh. is making this painful choice that she still feels like is the right one and the necessary one. For whatever reason, her motives might be a mystery to somebody who doesn't feel the same way, Maybe including her husband in the movie. Afraid of breaking down the space-time continuum. She's like, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. Also, on the title, always felt natural that it would be preceded by a the. <laughs> I think there was a movie called The Arrival... Yeah. In the 90s with Charlie Sheen, maybe? <laughs> Something like that? Yeah, yeah. So Villeneuve is a French-Canadian. He bursts onto the scene in America with some of his indie work that didn't really have like the big Hollywood cast attached to it. But once he breaks into this run mm-hmm. with high-profile Hollywood actors, big budgets, it's a pretty crazy run, not just because of the titles, but how fast it all was and condensed. And I really do think Villeneuve snuck up on people who sure. don't pay super close attention to every director. And then there's a few name brand guys. And then all of a sudden you're like, who's this Villeneuve guy? And right. it's like 2016 and he's already had four movies that are out of control. And now he's like at a point where he's doing like massive budget shit. Even though not all of his movies have been box office hits. Arrival obviously was. But yeah. not all of these are huge hits. But they're all great. Prisoners 2013. Enemy... 2013, the same year. Wow. Big year for Villeneuve and Jake Gyllenhaal together. Sicario in 2015. Oh, yeah. Arrival in 2016, the very next year. And Blade Runner 2049 in 2017. Very prolific over a short period of time. That's crazy. And like some big movies, too. Like Sicario seemed like it had to be a hell of a production. You would think. But, you know. If you know what you're doing, you have the scripts and you show up. Cut it, moving on. Get to work. Yeah. Heisterer had made several changes from Story of Your Life between writing his original screenplays and the final script, the main one being that the heptapods actually arrived on Earth in a type of first contact situation as he felt this helped to create the tension and conflict needed for a film. What that means is in the story, they just orbit the Earth. Mm. And they talk through these things that they send down. So there's a, even more of a barrier. Sure. But I think what his thought process was, that's not quite interesting enough for a film. Like, it works when you're reading it, but right. to see it, you're not having that same threat of them actually just being here on the planet. Mm-hmm. Heist said that the earlier versions of the script had a different ending. The gift from the heptapods was to have been blueprints to an interstellar ship like an arc of sorts to enable humanity to help them in 3,000 years. But after the release of Interstellar in 2014, Heisterer and Villeneuve agreed that this would not work and decided that the Heptapod's gift would be what was there in front of us, the power of their language. So again, we see it all the time when it comes to filmmaking and excellent films. A lot of it comes down to luck. Totally. Because so much of the genius of this movie ends up being everything connected with the language and how the language unlocks all of these different things for humanity. And so if you're going on this whole other tangent about an arc so that humanity can save them later, and potentially you would get into a whole thing with climate change and global warming, and maybe this arc would be used to take us away from this 
planet or something. Right. That's a whole other movie. Yeah. I'm not saying that couldn't be good. I'm just saying that's different. This is something else. Like, what they accomplish in Arrival is so off the map from that. It's a whole other thing. Yeah, I'll be interested to see when they make a sequel to this, like, 3,000 years from now. (laughs) (laughs) To see how we help these guys. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In writing the story, Ted Chang had in mind the following quote of the great physicist Albert Einstein, the distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. So before we actually jump into the story itself, I do think that I need to reiterate the fact that we will be spoiling things like crazy. Now, we always do that. Yeah. But what I mean is... I mean, this movie starts off in a way that makes you feel a certain way. Well, sometimes when we do this podcast, you fall into the trap of believing that what we're doing Uh is the same thing as actually making the movie. Not really, but in terms of like suspense and setting it up and then a payoff, and you don't want to spoil it before you get there, as if... Sometimes we do do the episodes that way for certain movies, too. Yeah. Well, that works better for certain things, but for this... It's impossible to get into the depth of everything that we want to talk about and then just save that all for the end. It's too much. So a lot of the stuff is just going to get ruined almost immediately. I urge you to check out Arrival for yourself if you haven't seen it. (laughs) That's all I can really say. Mm -hmm. It's one of those movies that there are huge spoilers for and having those things ruined would not make the movie bad or anything, but it would diminish it in some way. Sure. I think that it's more fun to go in clean and just experience it anew, fresh. Right. Don't know anything if you can. Which gets hard for a movie that's seven years old, but I don't want to blindside anyone by announcing what's happening almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> The opening of the film operates as if it's its own self-contained short story, a heartbreaking montage. We understand the pain of what we're seeing, but do not truly appreciate the depth of it yet. Linguist Luis Banks' daughter, Hannah, dies at the age of 12 from Mm. an incurable disease. So right away, we're like, well, this doesn't feel like it's going to be a positive experience. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. The most uplifting way to start it's, a film. Yeah. I mean, it's a heavy vibe right out of the gate. But here we are. It reminded me a little bit of the opening of Pixar's Up. Not necessarily <laughs> right. the same thing, but yeah. in the sense that you're telling a very condensed, yeah. emotional short story right at the outset. A sucker punch right in the opening. Get you into it. Yep. We have the incomparable Amy Adams as Louise Banks. She was Villeneuve's first choice, and she accepted the part within 24 hours of receiving the script. As I mentioned, she was considered to be a pretty major Oscar snub because she had been nominated at all the other major ceremonies. This film received no acting nominations and no special effects nominations either, which is a little weird. And it is quite a performance. Yeah, in all fairness... Her performance is probably the only one worthy of a nomination. Force Whitaker and Jeremy Renner are good in the film, but they're fine. They don't have a ton to do, really. She's carrying the movie for sure. Definitely. She always brings a certain gravitas to the proceedings. Yeah. She's just a hip lady. 
went from a recognizable face from an early couple of episodes of The Office to, oh, she's the girl in Enchanted, Mm -hmm. which is becoming this big movie. And, oh, now we're in safe hands because Amy Adams is in it. (laughs) That's how it's evolved. She generally picks, at a minimum, interesting films and projects to do. Plus, in connection with our previous episode, Kirstie Alley had a huge part to play in Aviana's career because oh, wow. Amy Adams, one of her first acting gigs, if not the first, was the film Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And it was Kirstie Alley who was filming it on location, whatever state that was. I believe Minnesota, but I'm not sure. And she's the one that encouraged Amy to go to Hollywood and pursue being an actor. So she probably recognized wow. the talent level. Star quality here. The classical music piece that bookends the film is called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. Its prominence during the film and the fact that it was a pre-existing track meant that Johan Johansson's score was deemed ineligible for an Academy Award despite being highly acclaimed. So here we go. Here's Uh a major spoiler. In linear time, the film's final scene is Luis departing from the hospital room where Hannah died, Mm -hmm. which is actually towards the beginning. It's not the first thing you see, because obviously there's the montage to building up to that. It's the end of the opening montage. But that's linearly the last thing that happens, which is immediately followed by the first scene in terms of linear time. Louise's arrival at the university to find only a few students in her lecture room because of the event that's going Mm -hmm. on. Everyone's distracted. Yeah, she's got that same thing as me where she has no idea what's happening in the world. (laughs) Yeah, that would be you. (laughs) We'd be two days into this event. And I'd, I'd be and showing I'd be up like, to do the pod, and you'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> There's 12 fucking alien ships on the planet. But yeah, we are doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, bring your own beverage. I don't have anything to give you. Then I'd be going like back to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, right. I would be like rejoicing. I'd be like, does this mean we don't have to go to work anymore? <laughs> right? Right? I keep saying that. Yeah. Work is canceled for everyone, right? <laughs> Seemingly, in the aftermath of what we just witnessed... 12 extraterrestrial spacecraft hover over various locations around the Earth. In the ensuing widespread panic, affected nations send military and scientific experts to monitor and study them. In the United States, U.S. Army Colonel Weber, played by Forrest Whitaker, recruits Banks and physicist Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Renner, to study the craft that is parked above Montana. Montana is also the site of first contact between humans and aliens in Star Trek lore, as first revealed in Star Trek First Contact from 1996. And Hokkaido, being another one of the sites, is a reference or homage to Contact from 1997. What if people were just like, let them have Montana? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Well, we didn't know why they were here. Yeah. We didn't get it. And even when we started to get it, we still almost went to war with them, even though they right. were kind of like, oh, my God. They're like I know. rolling their eyes. They have eyes. You can't really tell. Hard to say. I get the sense of urgency from humanity at large, but how are you expecting that someone's going to be able to communicate with these things in any remotely short period of time? Like People are constantly asking for updates. It's also ridiculous, too, that the first idea, and this would be real. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's not real, but the first idea is like, well, we should start a war with them. I think that if there are beings capable of getting here beyond our detection, just showing up. We're dead. 
Yeah, if they want us to yeah, be dead, right. we yeah. will just be dead. Obviously, they're way, way more advanced than we are. Right. So I think at that point, you might as well just try to be diplomatic. What first. if they ended up being like interested in the film industry, though? You know what I mean? We were like, we got a few cool movies we could show you. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this podcast? It's called The Greatest Moments in History Forever. Immediately, like, destroying the planet. <laughs> it's like Independence Day. One of them's an ass clown, like one of the aliens. There's like a Greatest Moments sticker on one of those shells. <laughs> state of emergency, with as many as 5,000 National Guard being deployed to the state of Montana alone. Borders are closed and flights have been grounded, stranding millions of travelers. Panic buying of gas, water, and food continues to escalate, and federal authorities have temporarily lifted all caps on overtime for law enforcement. The ATF has put a temporary ban on new gun licenses, forcing many independent suppliers of hunting equipment and firearms to close their doors to the public. 48 hours later, and no further developments from the site of the 12 UFO. And already the public expects us to know the answers. I'm Colonel G.T. Weber. We never formally met, but two years ago, you did some Farsi translations for Army Intelligence. Hi. You made quick work of those uh, insurgent videos. You made quick work of those insurgents. You are on the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. And you have another two years in the SSBI, so you still have top secret clearance. That's why I'm in your office. I'm not a Berkeley. Okay. I have something I need you to translate for me. Why are you here? Can you can you understand us? Where did you come from? Now you heard it. What do you make of it? Is that? Yes. How many? How many what? Um, how many, um, speaking? Two. Assume they were not speaking at the same time. Are you, are you sure? Did they have mouths? So how would you approach translating this? Do you hear any words? Phrases? I don't, I, I don't know. So what can you tell me? I can tell you that it's impossible to translate from an audio file. I would need to be there to interact with them. You didn't need that with the Farsi translation. I didn't need it because I already knew the language, but this, this is... I know what you're doing. Tell me what I'm doing. I'm not taking you to Montana. It's all I can do to keep it from turning into a tourist site for everybody who has a TS clearance. I'm just telling you what it would take to do this job. This is not a negotiation. If I leave here, your chance is gone.
Good day. Colonel? You mentioned Berkeley. Are you going to ask Danvers next? Maybe. Before you commit to him, ask him the Sanskrit word for war and its translation. The reason the ships never touch land is explained by production designer Patrice Vermette, stating, the 12 identical ships would travel across the universe and end the journey by hovering 28 feet above the ground in delicate equilibrium, leaving it to Earth's people to make the final outreach to contact them. In the early scene where Colonel Weber visits Louise in her school office, he mentions she still has another two years in her SSBI, which stands for Single Scope Background Investigation, a type of U.S. security clearance investigation required for top-secret level controlled access programs. It involves running background checks on the subject's employment, education, organization affiliations in any local agency in places where they have lived, worked, traveled, or attended school, including interviews with persons who know the subject both personally and professionally. Once granted top-secret clearance, is good for five years, after which another SSBI must be conducted for renewal. I was surprised by that. When he's saying that to her, I'm like, oh, I would have thought that would have been something that was like immediately revoked when no longer needed. Presumably, Luis's SSBI was first conducted by Army Intelligence before she was allowed to translate the recordings of Iranian insurgents speaking in Farsi. Even during this early recruitment process, so we have this situation worldwide going on, They want to bring in a linguist to see if we can talk to these things. Even during this early section of the recruitment process with banks, it's still built upon the nuance of language. Because when Weber says, well, you're not going to be able to talk to them actually in person. You're going to listen to these fucking sounds. And she's like, well, that's not going to work. Right. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go ask somebody else. Yeah, it's just like, what do you think? So she comes up with a game almost. Right. Ask him what this means. And the guy comes back with, what was it? It was a word for war, but what did the guy, what did it break down to? The guy said, like, aggression or something. And she's like, no, no, no. It just means yeah. I want more cows. It doesn't really matter what the specifics it's, it's are. It's overshadowed by the kangaroo story later. <laughs> the real thing is just about the nuance of language right. and how our perception changes everything, which plays into the big overarching idea of the movie about linguistic relativity and how our perception of language and how we talk and how we think impacts everything. Because mm-hmm. the way that you process language, that's how you think, that's how you dream, that's how you write. That's how you appreciate what other people are saying and doing. and Totally. In a practical sense, it really only applies to different groups of people because we've never communicated with anything extraterrestrial. But usually this linguistic relativity only really applies to how we talk about things, how we describe them, and then how that impacts our, like, our culture and everything else. But what this movie then does is take that idea and blow it up to this extreme example, which we'll get to, but... I like how they're already planting these seeds. That's right. Like, here's a word. We say this word means war, but what does it really mean? That just is so recurring throughout this movie. It's like, well, what does it really mean, though? Yeah. It's breaking it all down. The origins, like the roots of these words, like the origins of the meanings behind them. Because, yeah, there's all this subtlety. Like, a tool is a weapon, but a weapon is not always a tool, and a tool is not always a weapon. And I know. They're, well, they're constantly like, well, what we don't know what they mean by that. Yeah. That language is a things. tool. Yeah. And language could be a weapon, too, but so could a bomb. There's so many different 
nuances and variances and all these different things, and that's really what is at the heart of this movie. Now, when she throws this at him, I was kind of surprised because I wasn't really getting the sense that she like was compelled to go on this. Well, she's a scientific mind in yeah. a sense. She studies language. This is the biggest opportunity in the history of mankind, really. I know, but I feel like there's a good chance that I just show up and just get killed immediately. So, Well, you're a coward, but also... Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. If those things came to kill everyone, it's not going to matter if you're killed first or last. In fact, it'd probably be better to be first True. to get it over yes. with. <laughs> yeah, you do kind of expect, if not Colonel Weber, like one of the other army guys or somebody to be like, wait till you see this fucking thing. Yeah. It is fucked up. I know. <laughs> they don't prep her at all. I know. You would think part of the preparation would be like, they're real freaky looking. Yeah. They're going to be scary, but they don't do anything. Right. So don't worry. Like, at least some reassurance. The whole atmosphere of it is very cold and scary. And then when they have tentacles that <laughs> shoot black ink. Dirty sci-fi is what director Denis Villeneuve and cinematographer Bradford Young called the look they created together for Arrival. Villeneuve wanted it to feel like this was happening on a bad Tuesday morning, like when you were a kid on the school bus on a rainy day, and you'd dream while looking out the window at the clouds. It's definitely a good rainy day movie. The questions that Banks is tasked with getting the answers to are pretty basic. Why are you here? Where are you from? How did you get here? Essentially, what are your motives, intentions? Are we looking for war? Is there going to be some bigger thing? Are you guys just tourists? What's happening? Favorite kind of pie? Favorite kind of omelet? <laughs> Favorite color? Do you eat ass? <laughs> I was definitely reminded a little bit of District 9. For sure. The concept is kind of similar, although District 9, which is a genius movie too, but in a completely different way, because it they explore just com different themes. Mm -hmm. District 9 makes it all about class. Definitely. Whereas this doesn't really have anything to do with that. But the whole concept of aliens Definitely just the, showing up and right. being here, and we don't really know what to do about it. Yeah. What are we going to do? We can't really do anything. So it just becomes part of life. I know. District Nine's like a little bit further down the road where we're just like bored with it. Well, they're still here? Like, yeah. Why are they still here with nothing happening? It's like it annoyed us. At you're this not point. contributing anything <laughs> yeah. other than blocking the rain over where you're fucking <laughs> yeah. parked. You're killing some crops. <laughs> Please. So basically, what we have is this giant shell shaped object hovering 28 feet above the air in Montana. It's in a big open space, big open fields. I don't think they actually filmed this in Montana. I'm pretty sure this is all in Canada somewhere, mm. but I don't know. There's a congregation of people. It's sort of like Independence Day or some of these other things with aliens arriving. You can get all these people showing up. They don't really fixate on that very much. In fact, you only really see it from the air, and it's clearly CGI. Right. But on the road, there's like a very busy section, and then you reach the government barricade. And then beyond that, they've set up camp with the military and everything, and they have like a whole operation with tents and trucks. and Yeah, very cozy place to be staying. They drive out to the site, and then evidently they find out that every 18 hours a door on the ship opens and humans can enter, and it is habitable enough. They bring in yeah. the canary for like the canary in the coal mine situation <laughs> to test it out. It seems like whatever the aliens do to create an atmosphere for us to breathe, it only lasts like two hours or whatever, and then they have to redo it. 
I guess is the explanation. It's kind of hard to figure out what that even means. Who do you think volunteered to go in there first? I know. It's we like, are sort of jumping ahead. Yeah. It seems like more time would have had to have gone by than what it feels like right. in the movie. It feels like literally within 48 hours, she's there. But it can't possibly no, no. be that fast. Yeah. By the way, director Villeneuve and the writing team took extensive efforts to ensure the movie's scientific ideology was accurate. Renowned scientist and tech innovator Stephen Wolfram and his son Christopher were consulted to ensure all terminology, graphics, and depictions were sound. And that's something that I found over and over again in the research. Mm. We'll get into a little bit of their linguistic stuff at the end about the accuracy and how real all of that stuff really was. But for the most part, the science is pretty sound for what they are putting across in the movie. They really wanted to make sure that if this was real, this is what it would be like. The stuff you see in the background, the way that they approach the situation, it's all pretty real. Now, admittedly condensed. They are moving at a pretty rapid pace to get this all in in two hours, but... This is essentially how it would work, and and the science checks out, I guess, more or less. While the shape of the ship was decided early on, Villeneuve had great difficulty imagining an interior that would allow humans to easily navigate through such a steep and vertical design. Yeah. The later decision to turn gravity sideways offered an obvious and convenient solution. Definitely. But still a little bit tough to wrap your head around. Which makes for a fun and memorable early moment, the first time that Ian and oh, yeah. Louise are encountering this sideways gravity where they basically go up on a big lift, right? and then you jump off of the lift straight into the air, but then the gravity hooks you into the sides, and you can just walk up. I definitely wouldn't jump far enough. <laughs> well, then you would probably just land, land back in the lift. lift. Yeah. It, Probably wouldn't be a big deal, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I can't really imagine a scenario where you'd be invited I don't to be think so. on yeah. this team. <laughs> yeah. Listen, well, maybe they need someone who's illiterate and incoherent. To Do they need anyone to take pictures of their craft beer before yeah. they drink it? <laughs>
let's try to describe the scene inside the ship. So once they get the gravity situation under control, they walk into what essentially feels like a big room where at the one end of the room is a glass wall. Right. Did they put that there or that's part of the ship? I think it's part of the ship. Yeah, I think so too, but it is I think these ships were specifically designed for this purpose and they knew that humans would be afraid. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's actually probably for our our right. benefit. Yeah, yeah. Because once we get to the end of the movie, we understand that they came here with a specific purpose. Right. Although, <laughs> once we know the true nature of their language, you do kind of get confused as to why they didn't already know English or something. That's true. It seems like they know the beginning, middle, and end of time, so why would there even be these roadblocks <laughs> I didn't think about that. with yeah. us? <laughs> but whatever. Other than that, it's sort of like a stone, almost circular, like an oval-style room, and then there's like a glass thing at the end, where on the other side are these giant, horrific-looking aliens, which at first we see just giant tentacles, Mm -hmm. and each tentacle has like its own starfish-shaped hand that kind of comes out of it, Mm -hmm. and then out of that comes ink. Well, not ink, but something that they write with. Yeah. So they're able to create their own fluid that is like an ink thing. You're right, though. Not warning Louise at all here. It seems like you'd run the risk of like an immediate turnaround and be like, call yeah. someone else. I get that they want... There's the a movie, shock value here. The movie will be fun for yeah. the viewers, but in reality, I feel like they would probably give her a little bit of a heads up. Right. Because you don't want to throw people into this, because what if they have a complete panic attack? You're basically seeing a monster. I know. Now, these things don't act monstrous necessarily, but your mind isn't going to be thinking like that. You're going to be taken over by the irrational fear. and <laughs> Like how badly I don't want to be killed by one of these things. She grabs someone's gun, kills everyone in the room, and then herself. <laughs> well, that went great. Yeah. <laughs> Octopods, whales, elephants, and spiders were all sources of inspiration when it came to creating the aliens, which will become known as Abbott and Costello. Villeneuve wanted their design to evoke a very strong presence, an air of intelligence, and the feeling of being close to a huge beast underwater. He also wanted the aliens to feel like something you might imagine in a surreal dream or nightmare, and in later stages of the film, he wanted them to be suggestive of the Grim Reaper. The heptopods in this movie bear an uncanny resemblance to an octopus-like creature appearing in Martin Villeneuve's Joisiland from oh. 2002. The fact that Denny's younger brother came up with this image some 14 years prior to arrival has led some viewers to speculate about precognition, which is at the heart of the movie. That sounds ridiculous. I'm sure he just saw that, and he was stuck in his head. Hey, bro. Plus, the design for the thing in Enemy Uh is reminiscent. I thought so, too. He likes these big, long-legged things. (laughs) I got to tell you, I don't. (laughs) Long-legged Mac Daddy. (laughs) On board the shell, as it's being called, Banks and Donnelly make contact with two cephalopod-like seven-limbed aliens, whom they refer to as heptopods, Donnelly nicknames them Abbott and Costello. Banks and Donnelly research the complex written language of the aliens. I was thinking Scully and Mulder. Consisting of palindromic phrases written with circular symbols and then eventually share the results with other nations. However, as Banks studies the language, 
she starts to have flashback-like visions of her daughter, Hannah. So to give you a little bit of context, the first one happens about 50 minutes into the film. Right. Obviously, as a viewer who's not expecting there to be some big swerve necessarily, you're thinking this is normal. She went through a traumatic event. Yeah, and that traumatic event is somehow going to tie in with this, right? And it does, but not in the way you would expect. I know. <laughs> now, if there's something to critique here, it is weird that she's not more reactive to what's going on with these, what we view as flashbacks at the time. Well, what would you want her to do? I Talk think when something happens yeah. to you like that, your first reaction is to not tell people. Well, yeah, because you're be afraid you're putting a straitjacket. Yeah, yeah, you don't know what's going on. And then you shake it off, and then you move on. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, that's gone. Well, sure. I don't know what that okay. was. No, I don't know that anyone's ever experienced <laughs> visions of their own future, so I don't know what you would make of it. Yeah. We're not going through time in a nonlinear way at this point. So. Obviously, she thinks that it probably has something to do with what's happening, though. Sure. Because what, why else would this just start happening to right. her? So the experience of going into their spaceship has done something, but she can't wrap her mind around what yet. I was thinking who would be a fun person to have along on all of this is uh, Joaquin Phoenix from The Master, <laughs> giving his interpretation of what these circles mean. <laughs> oh, that's a pussy. That's a lady's <laughs> pussy. <laughs> They're like, we brought this guy in. <laughs> Villeneuve and screenwriter Eric Heisserer created a fully functioning visual alien language. Heisserer, Villeneuve, and their teams managed to create a logogram Bible which included over 100 different completely operative logograms, 71 of which are actually featured in the movie. The inky circular alien language was created by Montreal artist Martin Bertrand. It is also the artist's son who created Hannah's drawings. Yeah, like I was saying earlier, it's legit. You know, I don't know that this is a, a big enough language to withstand the rigors of actual usage, but it's more than enough for a movie. Like they went the full distance and really created something. And the details do all check out. If you want to go down that road, I don't know that most people would, but they really did the work and made this a thing. This isn't just some fly by night right. seat of our pants. Let's make it up as we go. Kind of a language or anything. I did think that differentiating the symbols is a very specific task that needs to be done because a lot of them look very close to each other. What do you mean, for the viewer's sake? Yeah. Well, you mean more so than what they do in the movie? No, not not more so. It's just, maybe, if anything, I'm just criticizing their language and symbols. They need to be more Well, to their yeah. interpretation, they are, probably. Yeah. They would probably look at an A and an E and think, well, that's like the same Come thing. Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I meant lowercase. Yeah. But or I get a, an E and a W. It's I mean, like we I get, just turn that thing sideways. Why, for like the movie and like the messages of the movie, it makes sense to have all of their symbols be circular. Oh yeah, it's all part of it. Right, palindromes. Yep. Even the music that some of the music they use is sort of a musical palindrome where it circles Starts back. Yeah, thing, yeah, it's it's all kind of the same idea. When Ian suggests the names for the heptapods, he is referencing Bud Abbott and Lou Costello's comedy routine, "Who's on First? As the bit starts, Abbott states who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know is on third. Several times. Costello doesn't understand, and his questions of which player is on which base are taken as true or false statements, needing affirmation or correction. For example, who's on second base? No, who's on first? 
I'm not asking what's the guy on first. What's on second? I don't know huh. the guy's name on second. No, yeah. he's on third. Who's on third? No, who's on first? Who's on first? Yes, and so forth. Both, so there is a significance to that, too. Both Abbott and Costello's bit and arrival show the ease of misunderstanding right. while communicating. I don't want to take away from your success in there. But Dr. Banks, is this really the right approach? Trying to teach him how to speak and read? That's got to take longer. You're wrong. It's faster. Everything you do in there, I have to explain to a room full of men whose first and last question is how can this be used against us? So you're going to have to give me more than that. Kangaroo. What is that? In 1770, Captain James Cook's ship ran aground off the coast of Australia and he led a party into the country and they met the Aboriginal people. One of the sailors pointed at the animals that hop around and put their babies in their pouch and he asked what they were and the Aborigines said, kangaroo. And the point is? It wasn't until later that they learned that kangaroo means I don't understand, so. I need this so that we don't misinterpret things in there, otherwise this is gonna take 10 times as long. I can show that for now. But I need you to submit your vocabulary words before the next session. Yeah. And remember what happened to the Aborigines. A more advanced race nearly wiped them out. It's a good story. Thanks. It's not true. But it proves my point. sequences back up. So that's something. Well, congratulations, you're a parrot. Well, it's a lot more than that, you cheeky bastard. Don't you see? They can't seem to follow our algebra, but complex behaviors. That clicks. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Problem is, not everyone shares our policy of being open with the aliens. Have you met General Shang? The call sign for him is Big Domino. Whatever Shang does, at least four other nations will follow. Luis, you have to gain ground today. Okay. You have a vocabulary list for me? I do. You're gonna teach them your name and Ian's. Yeah, so that we can learn their names, if they have names, and then introduce pronouns later. These are all grade school words. Eat, walk. Help me understand. Okay. Um... Oh, oh, no, 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 not the top. Okay, this is where you want to get to, right? Here's the question. Okay. So, first, we need to make sure that they understand what a question is, okay? The nature of a request for information along with the response. Then, we need to clarify the difference between a specific you and a collective you, because we don't want to know why Joe Alien 
is here, we want to know why they all landed. And purpose requires an understanding of intent. We need to find out, do they make conscious choices or is their motivation so instinctive that they don't understand a why question at all? And, and biggest of all, we need to have enough vocabulary with them that we understand their answer. Forget it. Stick to your list. Just don't add anything to it. Louise tells Colonel Weber that the word kangaroo comes from a historical misunderstanding and actually means I don't know, only to tell Ian that the story is untrue but illustrates her point. This is an actual myth, not just a made-up story. It involves Lieutenant James Cook and Sir Joseph Uh. Banks, who arrived in Australia in the 18th century where they made contact with an Aboriginal tribe. They were puzzled by the sight of a kangaroo and asked a tribesman what it was. According to the myth, the tribesman responded with the word gangaroo, meaning I don't understand in his language. Banks mistook it for the local term for the animal, spelling it as kangaroo in his diary. The myth was debunked in the 1970s by linguist John B. Haviland. In reality, the word kangaroo specifically refers to the gray kangaroo in the language of that tribe. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. When Cook and Banks traveled 1,400 miles inland, they encountered a different tribe who were unfamiliar with the other tribe and the word kangaroo, and thought it meant unknown animal. This new tribe then started to use that word to describe Cook's and Banks' horses. So you can see how this all spreads like wildfire when there's a miscommunication and a misunderstanding. And again, it's just another example of what we're dealing with in the film. I do sort of feel like if you saw a kangaroo for the first time with no awareness that they exist, that that would seem alien-like. It's just like, what about what? a giraffe? Yeah, that too. I mean, there's definitely some <laughs> odd animals out there. Well, yeah, all animals are odd. It's just yeah. that we're used to seeing I know. them. There's not really any difference between aliens that are real and then the made-up ones. It's just, you know. No, I know. <laughs> like a spider? Oof. Oh, God. Get out of here. We fall into a little bit of a cycle. Louise and Ian go in, try to make some progress, have to come out, regroup, frustration, tensions building worldwide. Obviously, most of the world is in a complete fucking panic over oh, what's yeah. happening. Everyone thinks World War III or Armageddon is at hand. Washington keeps calling about these damn progress reports. A big part of the movie turns into international relations, really, and how the world struggles to work together and get oh, on yeah. the same page because the aliens have picked all of these different places all across the world, different languages, different governments, different perceptions, different reactions, everything's different, which plays into it as well. But Louise is determined to make progress. She takes off her hazmat suit, which freaks everybody out. She puts her hands right up on the glass. She's all in now. She's a brave soul. These motherfuckers in there making what I would describe as whale sounds. Right. That seems to be like like sonar almost. (laughs) She just plays a tape. What are they saying, bitch? She's like, I don't know. Let's see how good you really are. <laughs> that was a voice? I don't know what that was. <laughs> yeah. It's a sound. Right. Here are some of the many things we don't know about heptapods. Greek, hepta seven, pod foot, seven feet, heptapod. Who are they? Trying to answer this in any meaningful way is hampered by the fact that outside being able to see them and hear them, the heptapods leave absolutely no footprint. 
The chemical composition of their spaceship is unknown. The shell emits no waste, no gas, no radiation. Assuming that the shells communicate with each other, they do so without detection. The air between the shells is untroubled by sonic emission or light wave. Are they scientists or tourists? If they're scientists, they don't seem to ask a lot of questions. Why did they park where they did? The world's most decorated experts can't crack that one. The most plausible theory is that they chose places on Earth with the lowest incidence of lightning strikes. But there are exceptions. The next most plausible theory is that Sheena Easton had a hit song at each of these sites in 1980, so we just don't know. How do they communicate? Here, Louise is putting us all to shame. The first breakthrough was to discover that there's no correlation between what a heptapod says and what a heptapod writes. Unlike all written human languages, their writing is semi-sciographic. It conveys meaning. It doesn't represent sound. Perhaps they view our form of writing as a wasted opportunity, passing up a second communications channel. Do you want to try to explain a little bit more about the heptapod speech and writing? No. <laughs> It's a bunch of circles. There's a clip for the clip show, folks. Yeah. Come on. It's a bunch of circles. <laughs> okay, Some of the so circles yeah, we have were... like a little bit of a thicker. Well, no, I just meant the style of how it's circular and they start at both ends of the sentence at oh, the same yeah. time and they seem to know not only what they're going to say, but how much space it needs. That's how they talk. Right. It's all as if it's like we write in a line. Yeah. We write it we start on the left and we finish on the right. Not everyone on planet Earth does it yeah. that way, but that's how we in America There's do like it. not a beginning or an end. There's the full concept. <laughs> it's a good way to, yeah. to say what you need to say and not worry about the other person's response. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's kind of how I wish this podcast was. I feel like it is kind of the approach you take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm writing in a circle and you're doing your own weird lines over there. <laughs> At some point, these two clowns realize they're both single and then they start hanging out and they're sitting on pickup trucks out in the montana sky and oh yeah you would think this type of thing would push a relationship if there's any chance yeah. and it does basically but things are complicated because there are 12 ships across the world and not to say that america is in any way superior but when you have 12 different locations, doesn't matter if it's the American one or any of the other 11, mm -hmm. it's hard to contain it. And so eventually, a photograph of one of the aliens goes viral. Oh. That's a rough scene. Putting a picture yeah. to this. People would be mobilizing pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> we got to do something. Meanwhile, these aliens seem like they're pretty chill. Even when we attempt to blow them up, they're like, all right, let's just fucking stop it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> please this is pathetic even though one of them dies they're kind of oh, no. like please just don't do that yeah 
Yeah. Although but, it would have been great if they just completely turned on humanity at that point. Well, like one of these yeah. fucking giant squids just gets so big that it's bigger than the whole world and eats the world. It just turns like into like squid. the mist. Yeah. It's just like it's this even giant. Bigger. Oh, yeah. So big that you wouldn't even know what was happening. Oh, it's like the squid big. from Watchmen. <laughs> well, not the movie. No. The world reacts as expected to this horrific sight, even though they don't know the full context. So time is of the essence. Louise continues to have visions of Hannah. Hannah draws a picture of a television show that she's created in her head called Mommy and Daddy Talk to Animals. Oh, yeah. And if you notice... Should have put this together the first viewing. On the picture, there is a bird in a cage. That's really the only clue you see right away. Yeah, yeah. Later, it it pans down to the Play-Doh, and she's got a Play-Doh of one of the aliens. Right. And then you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's a haunting image for a child. Well, they're nice. Yeah, that's true. Once you get past their looks. Yeah. <laughs> how long would it take for a human to try to fuck one of those things? I don't think you can. All I think of a sudden, you're getting fucked. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's the... They're pretty big. <laughs> but there's all of a sudden all sorts of fetish porn out there like within like a week. <laughs> Put me in your space, pussy. <laughs> People like posting pictures of them, like one labeled mom, one labeled dad. (laughs) (laughs) The whole process is taking a a big toll mentally and physically on Banks. She seems to really be struggling with it. There's a certain physicality that goes with the whole thing. I think it's just exhausting. She's not really sleeping. She's having these visions. And she does basically have the pressure of the world on her now. As this keeps ramping up and ramping up. I know. And it's like, you got to figure this out or else... We don't know who else can. (laughs) Shit's going to go down. Although it seems like, and this is just a guess because obviously we don't know, but theoretically, if Banks is unable to do what she does in the movie Mm -hmm. and China attacks one of these ships, it seems like they would just leave. I don't really think they were here for a war. Let's try again in another thousand years. Yeah, we got 3,000 years yeah. to figure this out. Let's try it <laughs> They're again. They're not ready. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess maybe what we're supposed to think is that whatever this gift that they're giving us right. is what saves us, and we if they don't give it to us, we would not exist in a thousand years, maybe. That was a little unclear to me, like how they were helping us specifically. Well, I was still kind of unclear. Is like, is the goal to have everybody yeah, I don't experience know. this? Because it doesn't that seem like it would cause a lot of therapy problems and like take a lot of getting used to. Yeah, because our whole world... all of a sudden the way you communicate with every other human is like completely different. Yeah, our whole Everyone world has would like be a... just completely different. Speaking of Watchmen, it would be like the way Doctor Manhattan is. Everyone thinks he's weird. That's how he sees time. Well, you'd have to learn the language first, which yeah. would be a big impediment for some people. Well, that's true. I'd be out the door immediately. <laughs> but I also feel like I'd be in the list of people that's just like not allowed to learn it. <laughs> Even if I was capable, they'd be like, listen, you can't handle it. We just know that you can't. The dream sequence where Louise encounters a heptapod in her trailer was originally written and shot as an ordinary conversation involving Louise, Ian, and Colonel Weber. It was cut for time reasons until Villeneuve and editor Joe Walker realized it contained the only mention of the Saffir-Whorf hypothesis, which was crucial to the plot. While attempting to cut the shortest possible version of the conversation, they created a strange, disjointed rhythm to the scene, 
and decided it worked as a dream sequence. This hypothesis, the Saffir-Whorf hypothesis, is of linguistic relativity, has a bunch of other names as well. It's a principle suggesting that the structure of a language influences its speaker's worldview or cognition, and thus people's perceptions are relative to their spoken language. Research has produced positive empirical evidence suggesting linguistic relativity, and this hypothesis is provisionally accepted by many modern linguists. This is the base on which this film is built, essentially. It takes an idea of something that is real and turns it into this big science fiction idea uh-huh. about unlocking something else because of language. What that thing is, we don't know necessarily at first, but it's such a huge concept that it know, it alters not only your language, but all perception of time. And the reality you live in. Right, which then... The next thing after time is life, how you perceive that space between birth and death and how it becomes more like a circle rather than a straight line. How you feeling? I need some sleep, but I'm fine. You know, I was doing some, some reading um, about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language that you can actually rewire your brain. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Hmm. The theory that, uh, it's, it's the theory that uh, the language you speak determines how you think and... Yeah, it affects how you see everything. It was, uh... I'm curious, are you dreaming in their language? I mean, I've had a few dreams, but I don't. I don't think that that makes me unfit to do this job. When Banks is able to establish sufficient shared vocabulary to ask why the aliens have come, the, they answer with a statement that could be translated as, quote, offer weapon. China interprets this as use weapon, or at the very least, something potentially aggressive or dividing, prompting them to break off communications and other nations follow. But it is time to take a step back and think, so why would they say this in a threatening way? Well, the hypothesis put forward is that Earth has no one ruler to speak to. Yeah. That we're too divided already. So their plan is to set off something so that we have one leader. I don't know why they would necessarily want that. Right. But that's what they're saying is who basically it could be for their own amusement even just to see yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't, all right, who's in charge here? No one? Here's the thing. Yeah. If aliens showed up here, the chances are pretty good that we would never understand their motive. Whatever their motive is, we yeah, would right. never get it. <laughs> unless it was like, "Oh, we needed water or something." Other than that, like basic needs or destruction, I don't know that we would ever fully grasp it. Because this almost ties in with what this movie's about. Their whole culture, like everything about their world and the way they perceive the world and time and everything would be so different that we wouldn't even understand. Like it wouldn't just be a matter of communication, like words and language. It would just be literally trying to walk in their shoes. Like we couldn't do it. Like we wouldn't grasp anything 
And they wouldn't grasp us probably either. Like it's just it's too different, right. you would imagine, unless there's like an alternate earth out so there. What is it you guys spend your time doing? Talking into microphones <laughs> about movies? For no one. <laughs> Come on, Johnny requested this. Yeah. We have some people listening. Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> because of this, worldwide cooperation starts to collapse. Banks argues that the symbol interpreted as weapon can be more abstractly related to the concepts of means or tool, while China's interpretation likely results from interacting with the aliens using Mahjong, a highly competitive game. So this is something that someone who is not a linguist yeah. would never even think of. But what she says is however you choose to communicate is how everything is then shaped and defined. So if you are communicating through a game where there's a winner and a loser, then everything is shaped around that. Right. So that's what they're bringing to theirs in China. I know. There's almost like another element of this, of the modern overanalyzing of every quote that's ever out there for anything. (laughs) Again, we're back to the context and intricacies of language. But the world falls into a complete and total panic. I was actually wondering, are regular people still living their everyday regular lives? Or has the world shut down? How many people are saying, do I have to go to work? Do I have to pay my bills anymore? I wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) If we all don't do it, they can't do anything. (laughs) Max out all your credit cards. Well, that's too late for that. (laughs) What, did the aliens bring a time machine? (laughs) Folks. Rogue soldiers plant a bomb in the Montana craft. Unaware, Banks and Donnelly re-enter the alien vessel, and the aliens give them a more complex message. Just before the bomb explodes, one of the aliens ejects Donnelly and Banks from the vessel, knocking them unconscious. When they wake, the alien craft has moved beyond reach, and the U.S. military is preparing to evacuate in case of retaliation. Who goes and gets them? That is not shown. We don't know. They're floating in the weird gravity, and then all of a sudden they wake up in their tents. I don't know how they got out. But if the aliens are good, Mm -hmm. and they're also so perceptive and kind and understanding that they know somehow, instinctually maybe, that these saboteurs have acted on their own volition yes, and do not represent the two translators trying to help them, nor do they represent humanity in general— why don't they just warn Louise and Ian mm. right away? Say, bomb. Oh, I guess that could be misinterpreted. They could just say, not now. Yeah. Please leave. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they send out this complicated message, and then they bring it back, and Banks interprets it, and it just says, send nudes. <laughs> and then they're all like, well, what do you think they meant by this? <laughs> Why would they do this? <laughs> they traveled across oceans of time just for nudes. Donnelly discovers that the symbol for time is present throughout the more complex message and that the writing occupies exactly one-twelfth of the 3D space into which it was projected. Banks suggests that the message is split among the 12 craft and that the aliens want all of the nations to share what they learn. A little preachy. Really? Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell us what the fuck you want us to know. <laughs> Work together. China's General Shang issues an ultimatum to his local alien craft demanding that it leave China within 24 hours. 
Russia, Pakistan, and Sudan follow suit. Communications between the international research teams are terminated as the panic continues to grow. Banks goes alone to the craft, which sends down a transport pod, which I actually kind of thought was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. They fly way up high so no one can actually reach them. And then they see her show up and they're like, all right, send that down. (laughs) (laughs) She's welcome still. She's VIP. Abbott has been mortally wounded as a result of the explosion. Banks is brought inside the glass with Costello. Seems like a scary place to be. The true size and shape of the creature. This was a pretty fun reveal. Yeah. Because you get so used to seeing what basically looks like a hand with extra fingers and it's long and gross. Right. And you realize that that's just their feet or bottom parts. Something. And then they go way taller and then they have what seems to be kind of like a head at the top. It's a scary sight. It's almost like the structure from Wicker Man, but without arms, but then like a mop feet that also they use as fingers and the things that they write with. But they're at the bottom. They don't really have like arms in the middle, I don't think. It's more just a long extended midsection that goes up to a head, which is where the sound comes from that they're making. It's a wild scene in there. It's very misty and shit too. Yeah, I know. Costello explains that they have come to help humanity, for in 3,000 years, they will need humanity's help in return. God only knows what we could do for them, but I guess in 3,000 years, a lot could change. I do think she would a little bit be like, really? This is what it's for? It's a little disappointing. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 3,000 years? Really? Do you know how much this has inconvenienced my life? Haven't you ever heard of climate change? Yeah. We're not going to be here in 3,000 no. years. <laughs> Yeah, she just hands them a fucking Inconvenient Truth DVD. (laughs) Here, have fun. Jackass. (laughs) You realize how dead I'm going to be in 3,000 years? I don't give a shit about this. (laughs) Fuck's sake. (laughs) By using all of the context clues a conversation can provide, Banks realizes the quote-unquote weapon that they were referred to previously is actually their language. Learning the language of these aliens alters humans' linear perception of time, allowing them to experience memories of future events. The alien is now being subtitled here. Right. Pretty quickly. She's getting it. You kind of have to take a leap of faith that she would know their language well enough now to not have to reference everything two seconds. Because they're going off the chain here. She, the, the, she's almost as if they understand her. and they, They're having tea them. with each other, yeah. You kind of have to go with that. Right. That's a little bit of a leap. I know that she's a scientist. I know that she's a linguist. I know that she's been studying it nonstop since she got there. It seems like you would still need to this, refer to notes. I, it feels to like it would this. take a lifetime to be like fluent in this. Probably not a lifetime, but... Years. To be completely fluent, yeah. Yeah. But to even grasp a little bit of what they're saying, I still think she would need the notes. Right. Well, if we're seeing it from her perspective, who's to say that she's actually getting this right? (laughs) That's true. This is all a lie. (laughs) The alien tells her that Louise sees future. And then she says, I don't understand. Who is the child? Because she's continued to have flashbacks even right up into this moment. She's having these flashes to Hannah. And that... Whoa! (laughs) It all clicks. That was in the theater a moment where it felt like someone slit open my armpit 
and filled my body up with ice cold water. Yeah. Just took a pitcher of ice cold water and started just pouring chills. it in. It wasn't even like chills. It was just like a full rush. Yeah. Of my blood Ooh. just went cold. Because I, I, I did not see it coming. No, no. I didn't expect there to be a twist. I hadn't heard of a twist, which is why, you know, when you tell people that there is a twist, that's kind of similar to spoiling it, even if you don't spoil the specifics. Right. Because but this then you're expecting there to be something. I know, and it's a twist that you don't feel like is on the table because you're 100% believing the reality the way the movie has set it forward. Right, and once you know it, then you start to see, like, oh, the whole time they're talking about circular time and they're talking about different things. And then in, and then in some of the flashbacks, you start to see clues. Hannah is talking about her dad being a scientist and then the bird in the cage thing and different stuff like that. And you start piecing it together. But right. Oof. Wow. Wow. That was a moment in the theater. Mm-hmm. And I will explain right now that there won't be a clip for that scene, even though it is sort of the biggest moment, because half of it is subtitled with the alien Doesn't and it's just making noise. Translate it, well. It, it's more of a visual clip. Yeah. I do like the part where she says, I don't understand who is the child. That is like a whoa moment, but it's not enough for a full clip. Banks' vision of her daughter are premonitions. Her daughter will not be born until sometime in the future. So the first time that I saw this movie, this was such a huge revelation and sent me reeling that I don't think that I fully processed what came after it. I got it, and I remembered certain things and stuff, but I was so distracted now at this point. I was like, what? This has completely reshaped everything. So now revisiting it a few years later, I did watch it last year. But I was in a hotel room in Louisville, Kentucky, and I wasn't Ooh. paying that close of attention. But other than that, I hadn't really fully rewatched it since the theater. So now I'm really able to say that I processed the ending fully. But yeah, that theatrical experience, I think I was in a daze <laughs> after this part. <laughs> and there's still like 20 minutes left of the movie. Yeah. Because in my memory, I was thinking this is like at the very end she says this. That's like when I thought coming it into doing like, this well, episode. Yeah. They kind of just keep expanding on this now. Well, now the aliens are content to head out. Yeah. Basically. All right, you got it, Luis. You can Peace. take it from here, yeah. I guess. So they do start turning sideways, and you realize they are flying saucers. Yeah. They just were sideways the whole time, right. and then they eventually turn. When Louise's daughter questions the reason for her name, Hannah, Louise explains that her name is a palindrome that is... It is spelled the same backwards as it is forward. This reflects the theme of the film in that the story starts as it finishes due to the story's events existing in a non-linear timeline. The opening few scenes of the film are simultaneously the beginning and the end, as is the case with the order of the letters that make up Hannah's name. Here's a thought. I don't think that this is necessarily the case, but it's interesting. What if that beginning... Mm -hmm is a dream that she has right at the beginning. Like, we see it as she's dreaming it. Yeah. In other words, the aliens have arrived, and there's some sort of connection, like predestination. Because the aliens, theoretically, would already know it's her. Right. Because to them, time is a circle. And it's no, yeah, happened. I can get into this. There's already a connection I do feel there like there might be something them. to that, that the way the movie starts off, it's a dream that she's experiencing right then. So maybe that's your answer to why she doesn't, say anything about it because she had this haunting dream and she doesn't understand it and then she keeps flashing to that dream right so in her head she's like this is some dream that i don't understand why do i keep coming back to it but it's not a dream maybe i don't know if that's the case or not 
I know that they do I it. I think there's a strong argument that it could be. Yeah, I think they do it that way just to throw the viewer off, obviously. If you saved that for later, then it becomes more and more obvious that something's up. But, yeah, I do think it's possible that she already started having some sort of a connection or interaction with these things before she's even called into duty or she even knows that they're there. Right. I don't know. That is on the table, I guess. Well, she she's already a part of their timeline. <laughs> yeah. The crucial turning point of the movie occurs when it's revealed that the worldwide feared heptapod Wepton, which opens time and that Louise now possesses, is in fact their language. However, this is foreshadowed near the movie's start as Ian and Louise are being flown to the landing site and he recites the preface to her first book on linguistics. Quote, Language is the foundation of civilization. It is the glue that holds a people together. It is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. Mm. He reads that to her, and she's just sort of laughing it off as like, yeah, that's the generic bullshit you put at the front of a book. And then meanwhile, it's exactly what happens in the movie, in a way. Right. Banks returns to camp as it is being evacuated and tells Donnelly that the alien's language is the tool that was meant by the word weapon. Dr. Banks. A pleasure. General Shang, the pleasure is mine, really. Your president said he was honored to host me at the celebration. Yes. But I confess, the only reason why I'm here is to meet you in person. Me? Well, I'm flattered. Thank you. Now, 18 months ago, you did something remarkable. Something not even my superior has done. What's that? You changed my mind. You're the reason for this unification. All because you reached out to me on my private number. Your private number, General, I I don't know your private number. I believe it was important for you to see that. I called you, didn't I? Yes, you did. Banks has a premonition of a United Nations event celebrating newfound unity following the alien arrival, in which General Shang thanks her her for persuading him to stop the attack when she called his private phone number and recited his wife's dying words. He then shows her his private number in the premonition. Basically, a secondarily powerful scene, by the way. Once she's made this connection with the aliens and she understands their language well enough to unlock this power, essentially, is what it seems like. I guess in their world it's not really a power, but to us it would be. Mm-hmm. She hits this moment where we're being evacuated. It seems like China is about to start war with these things. What am I going to do? And then realizes I have this infinite power now at my disposal. I can skip to the end and see how this is going to be resolved. It is one of those things that you're just like, how do you launch into it? How do you learn how to harness this? I don't know. She just has to close her eyes, I guess, and think about it. 
Yeah, I don't know. They don't really get into the specifics, but it seems like she kind of is learning on the fly. Yes. Because this does seem deliberate and then gets more deliberate yeah. as she realizes what's possible. Right. She keeps like trying to get to this moment, just keeps like overshooting it. <laughs> I don't know what city she, she's supposed to be from, but let's pretend Montana. So she's like, did the Seahawks ever win the Super Bowl <laughs> again? Or whatever. I don't know what team she would like, but <laughs> she's just skipping ahead, skipping ahead, skipping ahead. <laughs> In the present, Banks takes a satellite phone from a table and calls Shang's private number to recite the words. So this is the big set piece that they build to. Obviously, we have Banks. She's got to prevent Shang from sparking a war by launching an attack on the spaceships. But now, with space and time at her disposal... She drifts into the future where she meets Shang at a party, and Chang is so grateful to her for preventing the attacks. Yeah, I feel like Chang was uh, getting some bad press. He seems like a much nicer guy than the way he was being portrayed by the media. So he explains how she did so. Banks echoed his wife's dying words. Arriving back in the present, Adam's character calls the general and repeats the words, leading to him to withdraw his forces. While director Villeneuve opted to shroud the line in secrecy, screenwriter Heisserer was more than happy to reveal it at the Alamo Drafthouse's oh, wow. Fantastic Fest. It translates as, in war, there are no winners, only widows. Heisserer previously explained on Reddit, I worked so hard on the dialogue in Mandarin for Denis, spent weeks crafting the lines that he finally approved, and then that scoundrel goes and doesn't use the subtitles in the scene. I guess there's something to be said there about the nature of language, and I love Denis, but he's also a mischievous fox. <laughs> All right, settle down, dude. Yeah, really? You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> there's a sat line here dialing China. Here? What do you mean, here? Whose phone is it? It's your phone, sir. Search base camp now. Find out who's using that phone. Hold on to those coordinates. Yes, sir. Come on. What did I say? What did I say? Shoot! Drop it! Yeah. 
Sorry. You are committing an act of treason. Drop it! It's done. I'm done. The Chinese announced that they are standing down and releasing their 12th of the overall message from the aliens. The other countries follow suit and the 12 spacecraft depart. So basically they just traveled all this way to give us an intergalactic brain teaser. Yeah. for nothing. <laughs> but they've set off a sequence of events now. Of what? <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, the world now would be fucked up. I know. It's sort of like the weird future we're heading into with the uncertainty around AI. I know. And it seems like this might be the end of the world. I think if everyone knew the past, present, and future all at once and knew their whole life, it It might be the end of the world. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly takes a lot of the mystery and fun out of things. Or does it add more fun? (laughs) Potentially. During the evacuation, Donnelly expresses his love for Banks. They talk about life choices and whether he would change them if he would see the future. I was thinking about Ian, like if he had been the one who was experiencing this first and all of a sudden like there's a daughter in the mix and then he's like, wait a second, that means we hook up. (laughs) All of a sudden he's like, that's what it becomes about. (laughs) Banks knows that she will agree to have a child with Ian despite knowing their fate that Hannah will die from an incurable disease and Donnelly will leave them both after she reveals that she already knew that it would happen. Hmm. Again, much like whether they should have warned her about the appearance of the aliens, this is a moral question that is very interesting because the movie establishes Louise as almost a martyr for this. Not her herself. I guess her daughter would be the actual martyr. But yeah. She's the one that has to make the choice, in a sense, because she already knows the future. But it takes two to tango. You need a mother and a father to make a baby. And it does seem as if it's a little... Unethical? Unethical to not say that to him. Yeah. And it's really hard to imagine like two people going in on this knowing that... It's- well, it's clear that he wouldn't have right. because of how he reacts, but... At the same time, she might view it as unethical to change the future. Totally. Because you're not happy with something that's going to happen. In other words, Hannah needs to live because that's the way it's supposed to be. End of story. There's And there, I think there's something, too. It's the experience is what matters. And the way that the aliens process death seems to be yeah. in that same vein. They know that stuff, too. And they right. do it. They have to live their life yeah. and do it because their whole perception of the, how life and the world is is way different. So... Even when Costello says Abbott is in death process or whatever. Yeah. Not that they literally call each other Abbott and Costello, but he uses the <laughs> yeah. symbol that means Abbott, I guess, to Amy Adams. But, you know, he's like, Abbott is in death process. He doesn't seem that broken up about it. <laughs> because they just understand. They already knew yeah. before they came, probably. Right. That that's oh, sure. They understand death is not something to be afraid of. They just understand that that is part of the circle the overall cycle right your circle goes to here mine goes to they don't think of it as if i need to live 99 years to have a good life it's there is no choice in that it's you already know your circle from day one that's just how it is and the experience is worth it i guess that's what the movie wants us to think right it's tough it's really tough because you're talking about a child with a disease that even if you take away the death part of it Obviously, there's going to be so much pain. I know. And it's horrible. 
and scary. It's going to do irrevocable damage to this relationship that you have with this guy. Well, he seems like a dick. Yeah. <laughs> I felt that way when the daughter says he looks at me different. Like, he can't even. Yeah. I, and I get why he's in pain and why it sucks. But, like, dude, come on. That's yeah, That was, like, such a fucking brutal line. And then I thought <laughs> I thought she was about to tell her. Oh, she yeah. starts launching into this thing. And I'm like, I don't know if you should just tell her this yet. What, what if... What if the aliens were wrong? What if these visions were wrong? The doctor's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Hannah's like 47 and her mom's like still thinking she's about to die. Right. She's like, Mom, get over it. <laughs> in the source novella, Hannah dies at the age of 25 in an accident while climbing a mountain. That means that Louise knows well in advance of her death from something seemingly avoidable but has come to accept its inevitability, which lends a far darker tone to the story. Not to sound callous, but yes, there is a little bit more of a darkness in terms of almost like a final destination inevitability. But yes, it's horribly tragic when someone dies when they're 25. It's not as sad. (laughs) That's not as sad. You get to at least be an adult for a little bit. 12 is like, that is just brutally tragic. Near the end of the film, Ian calls Hannah Star Stuff, a reference to Carl Sagan's Cosmos, in which Sagan states, The nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our apple pies were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. Sagan also wrote Contact, which was also a story of extraterrestrial communication. So, Hannah... This is where your story begins. The day they departed. You all right? Despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it. And I welcome every moment of it. H A N N A H. Star stuff. Ian. Yeah. If you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you change things? 
Maybe I'd say what I feel more often. I, I don't know. Hmm. You know, I've had my head tilted up to the stars for as long as I can remember. You know what surprised me the most? It wasn't meeting them. It was meeting you. I think the genius of this movie ends up being its ability to take these huge concepts of language, perception, time, and how we experience and process life all through the lens of this linguistic relativity, the Safferwerf hypothesis, and then translate that to an audience, to use a, a language type word, right? in a way that connects these bigger ideas to a more human example, a poignant, painful real human emotional thing a cinematic sucker punch oh yeah packed with powerful emotions and so you care more well, you, about the bigger ideas because you've been given an example of how this would work as a viewer you're basically like Luis because it sort of feels like you're on a fairly basic linear movie storyline yes and then when you hit that point it's like oh shit Everything I, I thought I knew as I was going along this uh, along this journey is not that way. And it's not just that there's a trick or a twist. It's right. that it's what comes along with it. Yeah, yeah. It's the idea that... The twist coincides with what the movie's trying to say. Once you know your fate, you could theoretically change it. That gets into all kinds of time travel movies or and all kinds of stuff that is covered through science fiction plenty of times. And so what this movie does is have her in this position where she knows what's going to happen, 
and lets it happen anyway. And then we're left to interpret her reasons for doing that. Because I think that, honestly, the audience would be pretty split and mixed on how to feel about that. I know. Well, it does seem like how do you go through with it all without just kind of carrying the sadness with you the entire way through? I know, because when they do those montages of her with the baby and then with the toddler and then teaching her to read. and Right. I know that maternal instincts would kick in and love and all those things, you but hear- to put in all of that time and energy just to know... Where this is heading. Yeah, it's so painful and defeating, but I guess... Yeah, hard to compartmentalize that, but it seems like she was able to. I guess that's what they're saying life is, though. It's sort yeah. of a message about what life is, is that we do these things and we don't know right. why. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what is the point? good point. Yeah. (laughs) This movie just makes me never want to leave bed. Right. What's the point? (laughs) Yeah. Who cares? (laughs) So let's go through some differences. I'm not going to read through all of these. There are a lot. I'm going to try to cherry pick them, so we'll see. Ian is called Gary in the story. I don't think that's a huge difference, but they changed it to Ian. And unlike in the film, he plays a major role in unraveling the mystery. Yeah, I would say his role is sort of minor. He doesn't really do that much. He he does help you know, a little bit at the end. He's always around. He's kind of just like an assistant to her, it seems like. Kind of. He does some some stuff at the end where he notices yeah. that it's 0.83% of the... Right. And he's like, that would be one twelfth and all that stuff. Louise nicknames the heptapods Flapper and Raspberry as opposed to Ian naming them Abbott and Costello in the film. I think adding in more stuff about like the who's on first, that sure. stuff's cooler. yeah. Their daughter is never named in the book. Don't really think that matters, although adding in the palindrome again. Exactly. Colonel Weber does not feature anywhere near as much in the story as he does in the film. He only makes brief appearances at the beginning and end. That just seemed like they needed another character to have some ongoing engagement. Yeah. It would be too weird, though, I think, in a film to not address who's in charge right. of them. Yeah. Just, oh, we'll let you guys have this clearance have and then fun. you hang out. Yeah. In a story, you can get away with that, though, because you can kind of just sum it up in a sentence, like, oh, the military guys are bustling around, blah, 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 mm-hmm. and then you move on to like the internal thoughts about what's going on. You know, it's just a completely different medium. Yeah. The whole thing where he threatens to go get another linguist, that doesn't happen in the story. He just sort of tells her that he'll see what he can do as far as her coming face-to-face with them. They don't go through that whole charade, but I also like that, too, because it... It defines her as an expert above her peers, Mm -hmm. the other people they might ask, and it gives you an example, too, of what's going to happen, misinterpreting a word. Oh, yeah. Because of not understanding the roots of it and how it can have all these different offshoot meanings and then the intricacies of all that. The heptopods in the story view time as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, and are unable to grasp the concepts of cause or purpose. In the film, they view time spherically, have a clear cause, which is they will need help in the future, mm-hmm. and a purpose. They want to give humans their language, time perception, and ultimately bootstrap our technological level so we can help them in the future, completing the circle. I think that's an upgrade in the movie. Yeah, I think that they're, the story just kind of had probably different yeah. goals. Gary, or Ian, as he's known in the movie, is never actually confirmed as being the father of Luis's daughter, but it is very heavily implied that he is. I wouldn't even say it's confirmed in the movie. They do toy with that as well. It is supposed to be him, of course, but they don't actually ever say it. Right. But yeah. 
Louise speaks of how she got into a relationship with another man named Nelson after she and Gary split up, and he also started a new relationship, though his partner is never named and is referred to as What's-Her-Name by Louise. That just feels like they spend more time mm-hmm. establishing the post-situation. Yeah. The spaceships remain in the Earth's orbit, and instead the humans have contact with the heptapods through the use of looking glasses, which were presumably sent down by the heptapods. Again, that just makes it more cinematical, I guess. Yeah. You can't have them just ha- hovering over the atmosphere. you got to have them down here. Right. Because then it feels like a threat is happening more. There's way more of these looking glasses worldwide. Nine of them alone in the U.S. in the movie is just 12 spaceships. The memories come to Louise all at once, and she cannot change anything with respect to them. In the movie, they come in a series of plot-convenient visions, and she's able to react accordingly. Louise and Gary's daughter does not die due to an illness. We already talked about that, the rock-climbing incident. General Shang, he's not even in the story. Okay. So the idea of China or any other country threatening to, to declare war, that was not a thing. Which is weird, because that's such a big propelling thing to but you don't necessarily need that in a short story either david adger a linguistics professor who teaches at queen mary university of london had a favorable view of the accuracy of the linguistics in arrival saying that the portrayal of trying different hypotheses about the language coming up with generalizations and testing them out was spot on similarly jessica kuhn a linguistics professor who teaches at mcgill university and helped with the film's linguistics stated that what the film gets exactly right is both the interactive nature, but also that you really have to start small. She noted that the creators had not invented a complete language. Well, that would be insane. Right. <laughs> if they had, <laughs> that would take years and years. Linguistics professor Betty Berner, who teaches at Northern Illinois University, said that the film's use of the Saphir Whorf hypothesis went beyond anything that is plausible. She also felt the film oversimplified the process of translating the aliens' language, skipping straight from Banks establishing the basic vocabulary of the language okay. to her being able to understand abstract concepts such as weapons. A little more critical here. It's like, yeah, but come on. It's honey. a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> it's like, what do you want them to do? Right. Go forever and ever and ever and ever about it? Get to the point. So thanks to Johnny. Absolutely. I was happy to revisit this because... It was on my top 10 list of that year, but I don't think I've watched it since the theater. Right, yeah. That's the cool thing about doing this podcast. You get sucked back into something that you enjoyed and then have moved on from, and then it's a reason to come back and re-explore it. I'm sure that one day we would have got to Arrival. I I think think we're going to work through several Villeneuve movies before it's all said and done. But yeah, happy to do it. Thanks to Johnny for the request yeah appreciate it if you have your own listener request please reach out on twitter at greatest pod or email greatestpod at gmail.com we have cash app we have paypal to make a payment we will work it out with you so just reach out in any of those ways this week we will bring back recommendations oh and i think we're going to do a special segment that i was trying to explain to matt that i will do not all the time Maybe okay. once or twice a year from now on. Maybe wow. three times. Just whenever. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to recommend three movies. These movies are movies that are on the schedule that we are going to cover in the next six to 12 months. That's Yikes. really all the more specific I'll get with it because things change. Shocking, though. At one point, I, I can't imagine you 
foreshadowing the future like that. Well, we've mentioned it with, yeah. during recommendations before. Okay. Oh, like this one we're definitely going to do someday. Something True. Like that. I'm not going to say when we're going to do these, mm-hmm. but hopefully this inspires people to check these movies out. That way, when those episodes eventually drop one day, you'll be like, oh, this one. Boom. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. So I picked three randoms that are on the schedule. Hopefully we'll get to them. First one is All About Eve. Oh, yeah. From the year 1950. We haven't done a ton of pre-1970s films in a while. I'd like to do a little bit more. They do a little bit less in the downloads, but I'd I'd like to encourage our listeners to expand their horizons a little bit more. So we're recommending All About Eve. It won Best Picture. It's considered one of the best films ever made. It's a little tricky to watch. It's on Sling, if you have Sling, because they do have on-demand stuff on there. I guess it's on there. It's on Watch TCM, which I guess is Turner Classic Movies app. I don't know if you can subscribe to that if you don't have cable with TCM, but I, I don't know. Or a streaming rental, the traditional way. It's also available in the Criterion Collection on Blu-ray and several mm-hmm. other releases as well. I would recommend it. If you're interested in film, this is the education you got to have, is watching things like All About Eve. you got to learn about the history. Number two, Manhunter, 1986. Hell yeah. Michael Mann. We will be doing this at some point in the future. You already know our love for The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. We've done it twice. This is one that my love continues to grow for. Yeah, there is a time in my life where I would have said that I preferred Red Dragon to Manhunter. Not anymore. Although I do think Red Dragon is unfairly maligned because it was directed by Brett Ratner, and there are some issues with it. I do think it's actually still reasonably entertaining. Same. However, Manhunter is cooler than cool, and it's definitely way better than Red Dragon. It's... Mm -hmm debatable how close it is to Silence of the Lambs, which I consider to be a pretty much a perfect film right. and one of my favorites. But Manhunter is also very awesome. The reason it's that cool we're a different way. even comparing them is, uh, if people don't know, is it is also a Hannibal Lecter story. It takes place before the events of The Silence of the Lambs, but it's more or less pretty similar. Sure. <laughs> Hannibal helping get another serial killer. That is available only as streaming rental right now, which I think is kind of insane. But be on the lookout for it if you don't want to pay for it, because we will be doing it, and it is worth it. Number three is another more obscure one for most people, probably, because it is a French film. And I'm talking about Contempt, or as it's otherwise known, Les Mépris, from 1963, Jean-Luc Godard, starring Brigitte Bardot. I love this movie. I love it more than Breathless. It's my favorite Godard film. Same. I hate the ending. The ending does. The very end. The very end is stupid. It doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie. But other than that, it's an A plus. It's a very interesting subject matter that will be a lot of fun to dive into one day. We don't do a ton of foreign films on the show, so I'm telling you now, check it out. It's available on Criterion Channel or a streaming rental. There's a new 4K. Import from I just pre-ordered Studio Canal it. coming out this summer. Not that we will be getting to it this summer. You have plenty of time to get to this one. But All About Eve, Manhunter, Contempt, we will be doing all of those in the future. Check them out. And if you're worried, if you're thinking, oh, God, those didn't sound like big movies, well, 
I didn't want to recommend the biggest movies we're going to be doing. That would be stupid. Okay, <laughs> I picked right. the ones that maybe people didn't see, you know, yes. <laughs> trying to help. Definitely. Now it's time for a little mailbag. Sweet. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. Today's email comes from Theodore, who writes, Hi, Zach and Matt. Just want to first reiterate publicly that you guys have become my favorite movie podcast. Your choice of topics, your sense of humor, your ability to put things in context, your depth of conversation are the perfect combo. Thanks so much for doing my listener requests. Here's some questions. All right. Was there a specific film or moment in time that really put you on your path to becoming a cinephile? Matt, I'll let you answer that first. I don't know. It's tough to trace it back. There was a moment. What? I thought that was the whole answer. Oh. I was thinking about it. It's tough to trace it back, period. No. There was a moment where, leading up to the year 2000, where I just started watching a bunch of stuff with a friend. We'd watch, like, American History X, movies that I, on my own, wouldn't have gotten to. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think that's when I started to, like, start to watch more serious shit. But I always liked movies. I would go to the theater a lot in elementary school. So, I don't know. I think it was always there. The moment in time where I started to think about film more seriously, which I've referenced a few times on the show, sort of in the context of Knives Chow from Scott Pilgrim, where she exclaims, I didn't know there was cool music until two weeks ago. Yeah. Which is how you feel. And not just about music. Movies, culture, everything. Because you're kind of sheltered as a kid. Some of it's maybe not kid-friendly, but it's also stuff you wouldn't be interested in as a kid. And then all of a sudden, the world starts opening up, and you realize there's tons of other music that you've never heard of. And there's all these movies that exist that aren't made for kids. And then you're like, holy shit. I would have thought Star Wars and Jaws were the peak of civilization. And maybe they were. I still think that they are. But that that, that, that was it, though. Yeah, yeah. That that was it. And then everything else was cartoons <laughs> or kids' movies or something. And then you're like, oh, there's all these movies that adults would be into. And then liking movies as an adult is a thing. I think as a kid, you don't even realize that maybe yeah, that right. adults care that much about movies. I don't know. So, yeah, mine probably happened also in the late 90s into the early 2000s. I graduated high school in, in 2002. So I would say the last few years of that, yeah, starting in the late 90s and then in into graduating high school, you can run off a million movies. It was the first time seeing Reservoir Dogs, Clerks, Fight Club, Days and Confused, Suburbia, oh, yeah. Almost Famous, the works of various directors that we've talked about recently, Christopher Nolan with Memento, Darren Aronofsky with Requiem for a Dream, lots of VHS tapes being rented, and then some of my friends would buy them and then we would hang out and watch them. Right. A lot of them the same, mall rats, whatever. Yeah, that time was also when I started going down that path of re- realizing, oh, yeah, there's directors, and they do, like, multiple movies, <laughs> and if I like a certain one, I should check out the other work of that person. I will say that once I graduated high school, there was probably a little bit of a pause then. Not that I never saw any good movies for sure. the next two or three years, but... You kind of move on into other interests. 
college is kind of overwhelming. There's a lot going on. I won't say that I was running out to every art house release in my first couple of years of college. I would say that by 2004, though, or five, you start coming back slowly. Yeah, yeah. I remember distinctly seeing Kill Bill Volume 1 in the theater and being so excited because there was such a gap between Jackie Brown and Kill Bill that years of right of appreciating Quentin Tarantino had happened and you're kind of like when is this guy going to make a movie again it's kind of like getting into Weezer after Pinkerton and you're like is this new album ever happening and then of course it's you know it went horribly wrong after a certain point (laughs) but you know what I'm saying there's this weird gap and so you join in that gap maybe although I did like Weezer when they were new with the blue album and Pinkerton but then you really get obsessed and you're like they're never having another album again meanwhile (laughs) the gap between those albums now would seem normal but with Tarantino, all of a sudden there's this six-year gap. Kill Bill is this thing coming out. There's going to be two parts. Right. What the fuck? You're sitting in the theater. This is something maybe I'll, I should save for the Kill Bill episode that we do eventually, but just that whole Nancy Sinatra song after that I know. opening, you're like, what the fuck is going on? I was already very into movies by the time I saw Kill Bill Volume 1. I do not want to pretend like I just discovered cool shit in 2003, but... I could remember sitting in the theater being like, I need to see cool movies now all the time. Because what the fuck was I doing before this? <laughs> Seeing the dumbest shit imaginable, usually. Harold and Kumar, Dude, Where's My Car? These are the types of movies I was seeing. I Not saw, that yeah, I know. there's anything wrong with that, because I would still see those. Well, I know. Well, I did have another run of it around the same time that you're talking about, of 04 and 05, of seeing like the dumb disposable movies in the theater, just because it was like senior year of high school, I saw right. like every horror movie that was in the theater. Well, but I probably didn't. Wrong with that. Yeah, I know, but I probably didn't see the cool shit that year. Yeah, so I guess my answer would be it comes in waves. It's a journey. I have to say that I did care a lot more about music back then too, so that took up a lot more of my brain. Oh, and yeah. Matt knows that I had an insane vinyl collection. He has a lot of it now, including the <laughs> turntable. That's right. I don't know. I didn't really even get like super into collecting Blu-rays until like 2016. There had been other waves. I had had a huge DVD wave. Same. And even a little bit of a VHS wave right at the tail end of VHSs. But to fully commit didn't even happen until 2016 because then I started, I think part of it was starting to realize like how limited this was going to be. Right. And that there is a fear of not being able to watch some things and a listener might request Sling Blade one day and then it's not even on streaming to rent. I don't want to go on that rant again, but... That was the long answer to Theodore's question. (laughs) So much for keeping these segments short. What is your favorite non-English speaking country to watch films from? For me, it is France. Yeah, I think that's for me as well. Second would probably be Italy. Who are your favorite characters from the following shows? Twin Peaks, Game of Thrones, Yellow Jackets, Freaks and Geeks. Thanks and keep up the good work, Theodore. <laughs> okay. Okay, my favorite characters from Twin Peaks are all the hot chicks. Yeah, I mean... Game of Thrones, all the hot chicks. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow Jackets, all the hot chicks. Oh, God, we're going to get another review. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding, No, people. I mean, tw- but Audrey Horn is definitely... I like Audrey and Dale. I always yeah. like Laura, Cooper, too, yeah. even though she's not really a character right. in the show. I, yeah. I like Shelly. I do like all the hot chicks. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. In Twin Peaks, it's like almost the whole... With David Lynch, all of the women are going to be attractive. Yeah. Some noteworthy exceptions, but for the most part, almost every character in Twin Peaks, 
I'm interested in. I enjoy spending time with. Yeah, I love with that Twin world. Peaks, it would probably be least favorite characters. Yes. I, that's even hard to answer because even the stupidest, I guess a lot of the stuff in season two. Yeah, yeah. For sure. All right. For Game of Thrones, Melisandre and Arya, for Yellow Jackets, it is the younger version of Jackie. Well, not that there's an older version of Jackie, and the younger version of Natalie. I do also like the younger version of Shauna as well. I do not like any of the adult versions, and from what I've heard, people have really had it with season two, the adult timeline. I have still only watched like three of the episodes from season two at this moment. I am going to finish it, and we are going to talk about it for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Did you have favorites from Arya, Jamie Lannister, Renly Baratheon, and Loras Tyrell? Renly Baratheon. Yeah, I always kind of got into like that relationship. <laughs> when you said that, I was like, who the fuck is Renly Baratheon? Like, it took me even a minute to even remember who that was. Freaks and Geeks, Linda Cardellini. I don't remember what her character's name was. I know she was the main character. Yeah. I liked Martin Starr's character, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> we like to pretend that we don't relate to the geeks part of it. Yeah. And try to pretend like we relate to the freaks, but come on. We were the geeks. So we're going to skip over Physical Media Spotlight this week. It will probably return next week. I know everyone's really waiting for that. So I think that'll do it. Let's wrap it up. Thanks to Johnny for the listener request. If you have a listener request of your own, feel free to reach out. Follow us on Twitter at GreatestPod. Email GreatestPod at gmail.com. We want to read your emails. Please send them in if you haven't already. Even if you've already interacted with us on Twitter... Even if you've already done listener requests, feel free. We want to have emails to read. We want to know that you're out there. We're really pathetic. Absolutely. We're desperate for your approval. We <laughs> need to know that somebody is listening. <laughs> so please, indulge us. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you get a chance, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you never miss one. Depending on when this episode is released, we may be back either in a few days or in a week. So we'll see. The plan right now is that there will be another episode pretty quick. So we're cramming them in. And then the triumphant return of One Trashy Summer. Hell yes. Where we debate whether any of the movies we pick are actually trashy and what that means. (laughs) To us, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a positive. Believe me. Right. This is the month where we really get to let our hair down and be ourselves for a change. Finally. Other than that, you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. And we thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon. You must understand the touch of your hand makes my folks react. That it's only the thrill for me. Girl, I possess a trap It's physical Only logical You must try to
cause to be There's a name for it There's a phrase that fits But whatever the reason you do St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis I'm, team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Do you know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean, the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Side? Then who's playing first? Absolutely. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. Why not? The man's entitled to it. Who is? Yes. So who gets it? Why shouldn't he? Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's white? Yes. Mm. After all, the man earns it. Who does? Absolutely. Well, all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, no. What is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? That's what I'm trying to find out. Well, don't change the players. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy. What's the guy's name on first base? What's the guy's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking about him. How did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? Stay off of first, will you? Well, what do you want me to do? Now, what's the guy's name on third base? Well, what's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. Well, I can't change their names. Will you please stay on third base, Mr. Broadhurst? Please. Now, what is it you want to know? 
What is the fella's name on third base? What is the fella's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third, third base. base. You got an outfield? Oh, sure. St. Louis has got a oh, good outfield? Absolutely. The left fielder's name? Why? I don't know. I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Then tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? Stay out of the infield! Well, don't mention any names out here. I want to know what's the fellow's name in left field. What is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. Third, Third base. Oh, well, take it easy. Take it easy, man. And the left fielder's name? Why? Because. Oh, he's center field. He's center. Will you pick up your hat, please? Pick up your hat and Whoa. stop this. Oh, look, please. Mr. Broadhurst. Yes. Wait a minute. You got a pitcher on a team? Wouldn't this be a fine team without a pitcher? I don't know. Tell me the pitcher's name. Tomorrow. You don't want to tell me the date? I'm telling you, man. Then go ahead. Tomorrow. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow you're going to tell me who's pitching? Now listen. Who is not pitching? Who is on? I'll break your arm, you say. Who's on first? Why come up here and ask? I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. The the <laughs> you got a catcher? Yes. The catcher's name. Today. Today. And tomorrow's pitching. Now you've got it. That's all. St. Louis has got a couple of days on the team. Well, I can't help that. All right. What do you want me to do? Got a catcher? Yes. I'm a good catcher, too, you know. I know that. I would like to play for the St. Louis team. Well, I might arrange that. I, I would like to catch. Now, I'm being a good catcher. Tomorrow's pitching on the team, and I'm catching. Yes. Tomorrow throws the ball, and the guy up bunts the ball. Yes. Now, when he bunts the ball, me being a good catcher, I'm going to throw the guy out at first base. So I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, that's all you have to do. Is to throw it to first base. Yeah. Now, who's got it? Naturally. Who has it? Naturally. 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 Okay. Now, you've got it. I pick up the ball and I throw it to naturally. I know, you he don't. You throw the ball to first base. Then who gets it? Naturally. Okay. All right. I throw the ball to naturally. You don't. You throw it to who? Naturally. Well, that's it. Say it that way. That's what I said. You did not. I said I throw the ball to naturally. You don't. You throw it to who? Naturally. Yes. So I throw the ball to first base and naturally gets no, it. No. You throw the ball to first base. Then who gets naturally. it? Naturally. That's what I'm saying. You're not saying that. Excuse me, folks. All right. I'm sorry, friend. I throw the ball to naturally. You throw it to who? Naturally. Naturally. Well, say it that way. That's what I'm saying. Now, don't get excited. Now, don't get I excited. I throw the ball to first base and who gets it? He better get it. All right, now don't get excited. Take it easy. Hmm. <laughs> now I throw the ball to first base. Whoever it is drops the ball so the guy runs to second. Mm -hmm. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it to I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. A triple play. Yeah, it could be. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be called. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't care. What was that? I said, I don't care. Oh, that's a shortstop. Here. 